this is Chris Westfall, and this is the Financial Executive Podcast. The recently passed CARES Act includes a myriad of tax and financial reporting changes, in addition to liquidity options for companies that are impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. The legislation is lengthy and complex and will add to an already heavy burden for senior level financial executives navigating the crisis. The Financial Executive Podcast spoke with two professionals from Crow LLP about the CARES Act. Matthew Schell, a partner with Crow's Assurance Professional Practice, and Howard Wagner with the Crow's National Tax Office to review some of the most significant changes that the legislation makes and issues that financial leaders need to consider during implementation. We started the discussion by asking Matt Schell to catch listeners up on some of the changes included in the CARES Act. Thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, there's there's really a lot going on in terms of not only on the public health side, but on the policy side and on the finance side, uh, and a lot has to do with the CARES Act. Uh, before we get into the discussion of the accounting and, and tax uh, specifics, maybe we could take a ask Matt to take a step back and um, sort of catch up where we are right now on the CARES Act and events surrounding it. Yeah, sure. I, I think it's kind of interesting when I talk to people, um, you know, just on a daily basis, we can reflect back on something. And when you look at an actual calendar, you find that something happened two, three days ago, a week ago, but it feels like a month ago. Um, and so maybe it's good to just run through some of the key dates because I think those key dates can become factors uh, that I just want to call out that people might consider those dates when they're going through um, and doing a lot of the accounting and tax things. So, I mean, probably first starting with, uh, I think it was January 7th, all the way back in January 7th was when they first identified that we were dealing with a new uh, virus. Um, and then January 31st, we had uh, the Health and Human Services Secretary uh, declared a public health emergency in the United States. That was in conjunction with the World Health Organization also doing a public uh, health emergency internationally. It, it wasn't until the very end of February that we actually had the first coronavirus death uh, in on U.S. soil uh, for this kind of new uh, novel coronavirus. And then once we got to March, things really started to accelerate. We've got Italy going on a lockdown for all of their 600, 660 million people. We have the March 11th announcement from the World Health Organization of this being a pandemic uh, with cases on basically every continent at that time besides our Antarctica. We had uh, President Trump doing an announcement or, of a national emergency. Um, and then we had just a period of significant dynamic changes in federal, state, local orders associated with mitigation efforts to try to slow the spread, just travel bans and stay-at-home orders and, you know, by the time we got to March 19th, which, you know, uh, most states had declared some sort of an emergency. And you know, here at the end of March, we've got almost half the country under some, more than half the country under some kind of stay-at-home order. So, yeah, and just a, uh, a, a shout out to Matt. This uh, does hit home for Matt. Um, his wife is a physician on the front lines of um, dealing with this and managing patient care. 
and um, you know, just appreciate everything she's doing as part of this, as well as whatever stress that's obviously bringing to your family. I know it's uh, hitting a little more close to home for you than for some others. Um, after that, you know, um, flurry of activity, we started to get some response uh, on key dates from the IRS and then the CARES bill, just the CARES Act that was signed uh, on March 27th. Um, earlier this month, we got some guidance on the April 15th filing deadlines and first quarter estimated payments for 2020. There has been a deferral of those until um, the summer. I think most people are familiar with that. Uh, state conformity is kind of all over the place. Most of the states are getting on board, whether they want to or really because they don't have a choice to, but not all states are officially on board yet, so keep an eye on that. Um, the other thing to remember is the guidance at the administrative guidance from the IRS was limited towards tax returns due April 15th, um, fiscal years due April 15th from the prior year, and first quarter estimated payments. It's important to note what hasn't been covered by relief. If you have withholding tax obligations, unless you meet you know, for your employees, um, those are still ongoing. Um, if you've got excise tax that you collect and pay, those are still ongoing. Some of the states have given relief for sales tax collection and use tax collection and remit remittance. Others haven't. So on the states, you know, it's all over the board. But don't just assume every check you send to the government is getting a deferral because that's not the case. On March 27th, we got the CARES Act signed into law. Um, that is a fairly comprehensive bill that gives individual income tax relief um, in terms of some rebate checks. It puts some corporate tax provisions in there to put money in businesses' pockets immediately, or at least immediately once the government gets their procedures and systems in place to handle this. And there is just a smorgasbord of employment tax provisions and incentives. So. That's, Matt, kind of the lay of the land. Now, there certainly seems to be a lot going on in terms of, and this, this seems to be a crucial time for understanding what to do next. Uh, maybe, uh, Matt, you could start with s some of the things that are top of mind from um, fa a financial reporting perspective when thinking about uh, these issues. Sure, and, and I'll probably break it down into two general buckets, right? You've got people that are finishing their December 31st financials still. You've got other people that are starting 331 financial reporting season. And then you probably have people with year-ends in, in between there. So first is I'm thinking about 1231 financial statements. The things that people are still working through on a financial reporting basis is, you know, generally they're thinking about subsequent event disclosures the disease, as I said before, wasn't really been identified until January. And so subsequent event disclosures today are broken down into two things, those that are recognized, and that pertains to items that um, subsequent events that provide additional evidence about conditions that existed as of the date of the balance sheet. And then we have what are non-recognized and become kind of disclosure items. And those are items that occur that we provide additional evidence about something that arises after the balance sheet date, but before the financial statements are issued. And so, as I said, if you're at 1231 year in, most of this wasn't identified until, you know, January and well after. And so we look at those kind of data points that I talked about earlier, right? We've got 
the disease was first identified in January. We've got a public health emergency with the U.S. and uh, World Health Organization. We've got February, you know, you have your first U.S. death on, on, on soil. You've got March pandemic declarations, um, January's or March's um, national emergency travel ban, state emergency shelter in place orders. And so, the, you know, those are the types of, you know, I guess different, each one of them by itself is probably not determinative, but you start looking at some of those different factors to say, you know, at what point do I have items uh, depending on when your financial statements are going out the door that I need to start talking about. You know, these things um, are of such significance that if I don't disclose them, my financial statements might be misleading. Um, if you do trigger that point, you've got to have a disclosure of what's the nature of the event and uh, an estimate of the financial effect uh, or a statement to the effect that you can't uh, kind of make that estimate. Obviously, these are very uh, facts and circumstances based, and you're going to want to work with kind of those charged with governance, your board, audit committee, uh, accountants, attorneys, and and other advisors as as is necessary to, as you're working up the disclosures, trying to get those financial statements out the door. When you think about the March 31 financials, right, we've got a different fact set, right? Obviously, with we're here in you know the end of March. We all know that this has a huge impact on, with a myriad of changes kind of disrupting your normal operations, combination of government and regulatory interventions, everything from school closures, shelter in place, travel bans, monstrous changes on customer behavior, way that we do business and transact, and just dynamic, wide-ranging effects that are both kind of known and also somewhat unknown. How long is this going to last? What other future changes are going to continue to be necessary to put into place? This is a very challenging time when you sit and try to step back and, and, and think about what are the things that I need to think through? I mean, probably the most difficult item in this current environment is to think about, all right, I've got estimates that are based on some kind of forward-looking cash flow estimate. And to try to be able to do an assessment of, you know, how long is this going to last and what are the, what are all the impacts and what are all the things that are going to have to do. And then think about what types of things use those assessments. We've got, you know, impairment of non-financial assets, things like a potential goodwill impairment, realizability of deferred tax assets that I'm sure Howard's going to want to talk about. We've got obviously fair value changes. The markets have been all over everywhere, you know. Entities are starting to have to think about, are they going to be able to continue as a going concern? If my, if I'm not open, if I'm not selling things, you know, if I, if I don't basically have revenue right now, you know, is, do, do I have going concern issues? And so it's obviously, as I've mentioned, a, a very challenging time to try to predict future outcomes. And we've got a wide range of variables that we need to consider. Um, it's really challenging when you step back and you say there's really no experts in the medical arena or otherwise that can give a high degree of certainty to the duration and severity of the pandemic and how this will all play out or end, let alone, you know, kind of what further measures might be necessary to slow it. So as I look at it, I say, you know, there's a, a lot of things to think about in th your 331 estimates um, that are very uncertain and very judgmental um, that you're going to have to work through. Thanks, Matt. And, you know, moving on to the tax side of it a little bit, um, because President Trump signed the new law over on Friday, 
That's before 331. So any 331 year-end taxpayer or business, any 331 year-end businesses or any public companies that will have a first quarter provision based on 331 will need to take all of the changes into account in their first quarter provision. Very similar to what we went through with tax reform a few years ago that passed at the end of December and everything had to be incorporated at year end. Um, we're going to go through the same exercise here. So if you had a NOL that you were planning on only carrying forward, and now you have the ability to carry it back, including part of the five-year carryback we'll talk about, which could take it to a higher rate year, you're not only going to be looking at DTA and realizability of a DTA, you could also have favorable uh, rate impact by carrying it back to a higher year compared to the lower tax rate that you were looking at carrying it forward to. Again, a lot of computations that will need to be done uh, relatively quickly um, for the 331 year ends and uh, 331 quarterlies. Howard, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, what do you think, you know, as part of the tax proposal, do you consider the most impactful to businesses? Yeah, purely on the income tax side, you want to be focusing on those tax changes that allow you to put money in your pocket today or very quickly. Uh, I'll talk through some of those. NOLs, tax reform, did away with NOL carrybacks and only allowed NOL carry forwards, uh, starting with net operating losses incurred in 2018. There was also an 80% limit on the amount you could use on an NOL carry forward. Well, NOL carrybacks used to be a huge cushion in a down economy because companies could take the current year loss, carry it back, and get some cash in their pocket uh, from prior year taxes. So what this law does is temporarily puts in a five-year net operating loss carryback. It's for losses incurred in 2018, 2019, and 2020. So if I have a loss this year in or 2020, I can carry that back to 2015 when tax rates were 34 or 35% and get cash immediately. The other thing it does is if you're using a net operating loss carry forward in 2019 and 20, because that's the first time you can use these 2018 losses that are limited, that 80% limitation on the amount that you can use goes away. A lot of other complexity around the NOLs that are going to be very fact specific to some of our companies that are listening here. But the moral of the story is if you have something you can carry back to, you can go back five years and get that cash. Tax reform also when they did away with the alternative minimum tax, when you, when you paid the old alternative minimum tax, you got a credit that you could use against income tax going forward. When they phased out the alternative minimum tax, you were going to get that amount back over a four-year period, 2018, 2019, 2020, and the balance in 2021. They have shortened that, and everybody's going to get the money back with their 2019 tax return, the balance. There's also an election you can make. They haven't prescribed the mechanics yet to go back and claim that full refund on your 2018 return and get your money back. Why does that matter? Most companies on extension don't file until the fall. So your 2019 return won't be filed till August or September at the earliest in many cases. If you are gonna be delayed on extension on filing your return, this election to take it back in 2018 will let you get your cash today even though you haven't filed your 2019 return. 
We also had a limitation on business interest expense that came in with tax reform. It basically said you can deduct interest expense up to 30% of your base, which is known as adjusted taxable income. After that, any amount was disallowed and carried forward. For 2019 and 2020, that goes up to 50% from 30%. The other thing it does is your adjusted taxable income, the starting point of that is your taxable income. Because that's going to be lower for many taxpayers for 2020 than it was in 2019, it allows you to make an election to use your 2019 um, adjusted taxable income on your 2020. And then anybody in the retail business or real estate business, there was a drafting error for a group of a class of property known as qualified improvement property, improvements to retail property, improvements to a lot of commercial real estate, a lot of restaurants. They finally fixed the drafting error from 2017 tax reform and made that eligible for bonus depreciation on a retroactive basis. Those are the key income tax changes along with, you know, all of the various employment tax opportunities. They are complex in a spider web of overlapping provisions. I think the one program that's getting the most attention is what's known as the Paycheck Protection Program. Under that program, if you meet the employment rules, the employment thresholds in the bill, and you pay your employees, you get a small business loan for that through the SBA, and that will be forgiven over a period of time, and it won't be taxable. Generally available to companies with 500 or less employees, if you are owned by a private equity group or a controlled, for example, by a venture capital group, or you have a family that controls a number of businesses, how you compute that 500 employee limit can be quite complex and is going to be a real challenge for some people to make determinations. Yeah, that, that certainly does sound complex. Matt, maybe you could go into some, uh, you know, a lot of our FEI members, especially at the chapter level, are from mid-sized and family-owned companies. Um, what particular should they be aware of when it comes to the CARES Act? Sure. I think there's a number of different types of things throughout the CARES Act. It's really got a, a giant list of, of items that they're doing to target trying to help uh, mid-sized companies, families, employees, others. Probably first and foremost, if you're talking about from a business angle, you've got a lot of the small business programs, the paycheck protection programs, the six months payment programs for certain SBA, current SBA uh, people who have loans, various economic injury, disaster loans. I know there's a lot of uh, tax items that Howard mentioned, business tax provisions, payment relief for individuals. Um, there's various healthcare, paid leave, and student loan items for kind of individuals. I think, you know, the, the, the other thing I want to call out is, you know, there's a lot of those provisions that I would mention are, you know, when you're thinking about going concern issues, if you have some kind of a going concern analysis that management's trying to remedy, you know, using some of those programs to shore up your liquidity to try to address those going concern issues may be one avenue to consider. There's a lot of these uh, federal as well as various state and local programs. Within the bill, there's also some banking relief uh, for the banking industry. They 
carved out certain types of gap items, uh, optional relief for current expected credit loss accounting. There's some relief from troubled debt restructurings as they're trying to encourage the financial institutions to work directly with borrowers that are impacted. I think there's airline industry assistance for in terms of loans and grants where they're trying to uh, work with uh, the airlines as well as a lot of their suppliers as well. Yeah. One other tax provision that's very specifically geared towards small and family-owned businesses, I'll refer to it by its code section, the 461L limitation. Prior to tax reform, if you had a trader business and you were getting that on a K-1 from a partnership or an S-corp, as long as you had enough basis and weren't subject to the passive loss rules, you could deduct any amount of um, you know, those losses. In tax reform, what they did is they said, if you have a loss from a trader business, and say you get a K-1 from a partnership or an S-corp that has a loss of $600,000, Married filing joint could only deduct 500,000, single could deduct 250,000, and anything in excess of that, in this case, married filing joint, I would get to deduct 500,000, and only and the remaining 100,000 would be available as a net operating loss carry forward in the subsequent year. The CARES Act suspends that retroactively, and it, that doesn't apply until the 2021 tax year now, so anybody who has already been limited by that will be able to amend their return and probably do an NOL carry, either get a refund of the current year's tax or maybe even do an NOL carry back and get some money back. But that is the one key provision for owners of family-held businesses to look at on top of everything else, family-held, privately held. Yeah, and Howard, as a, as a follow-up to that, you know, there you know, the, there are just a myriad of changes going on for the immediate term. Do you think that, you know, that out of the current crisis, there'll be any long-term changes to corporate tax policy? And, and what do you think they'll be? I think everybody's got such tunnel vision on getting cash in businesses' hands. And you saw some of the political machinations as to whether they were going to be forced to have an in-person vote on Friday. Um, I think at least in the short term, they're generally focused on getting cash in people's hands and who knows what the long-term policy effects are going to be. It's a rather unusual time. Yeah, I bet. Maybe, um, uh, you know, Matt, you can go into a little bit um, or Howard about, you know, people are wrapping up annual and quarterly financial reports. Um, what types of things should they be thinking about at this time? I think I'd, Kind of stayed, I call it transparency generally. So we're wrapping up our, our, our annual quarterly proxy season, 8K press release season. You know, there's a lot of different types of in the kind of closing out the year end starting first quarter that we're, that we're moving through. And so first I'd point out the SEC provided in their delay and kind of subsequent extension conditional regulatory relief that provides an extra 45 days from having to file certain reports that would have been due between March 1 and July 30th. So that includes the 10 Qs, it includes, um, you know, certain relief from delivery of proxies or other information. Uh, you still have a disclosure requirement if you're going to avail yourself of that option that you file an 8K and you provide different types of disclosures about the, you know, you're impacted by this and how you're impacted and, and otherwise. And so I think first you need to be transparent as it pertains to uh, where you are and how you're impacted and, and providing that 
or that 8K uh, and meeting the requirements uh, for that regulatory relief. I think, you know, I mentioned before, obviously in your annual financial statements, everything that I mentioned on subsequent events, as well as, you know, risks and uncertainties, we're starting to see a significant number of filings that came in starting to add risks and uncertainties uh, and risk factors for pandemics or coronavirus specifically. And a lot of their filings have been coming in here in, in, uh, in March, late March. Uh, I, as you think about proxies, I think, you know, proxies are not quite due. Um, most people, you know, are going to be responding to board risk oversight disclosure requirements within their proxy. I think it's important to think about including information in there about how boards are kind of managing the evolving risks. Then lastly, I'd go through the kind of, you know, interim quarterly seasons by saying that, you know, within the financial statements and outside of the financial statements, I mentioned this earlier, you've got your, your risks and uncertainties disclosures, you've got your, your, uh, management discussion and analysis, you've got your AKs and press releases, internal control over financial reporting to the extent you've gone to a virtual workforce or, you know, had changes in internal control over financial reporting or disclosure controls and procedures. You know, you may need to evaluate if you have disclosures in that area. I think all of this can be wrapped up or kind of summarized in a bow. The, the SEC on March 25th, uh, this is the Division of Corporation Finance, published a new topic, disclosure topic nine, dealing with uh, the impacts of coronavirus. And I think there's some great questions that you, uh, as you're, as, as you're working through a lot of these issues that I think I would encourage companies to kind of provide disclosures that allow investors to kind of evaluate the current and expected impact of coronavirus on uh, the company really through, you know, management's eyes and proactively revise and keep those updated. I think there's just a great list of questions in that disclosure guidance that people should try to consider, um, you know, when they're when they're putting those disclosures together. Matt, maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about you know following up on that of uh, how are people working through, you know, actually today. I know there's a lot going on, and a lot of changes, but how are they working through the accounting and disclosure challenges associated with this crisis? I think people are working through the accounting and disclosure process kind of concurrently with a lot of operational change. You know, I think they go hand in hand in, in, in this current environment where, you, you know, you've got operational change that's having to happen that may cause, um, you know, you're doing a, some kind of a performing an impact assessment, trying to evaluate the kind of operational, financial, and strategic plans that are being impacted by coronavirus, identifying your essential functions and support activities and, and what, what, what is statutorily required to stay open, depending on whether you're thinking about federally, state, or local, identifying all of the different threats and hazards that might stop you from being able to keep those essential functions, kind of critical essential functions running, and risk assessments as it pertains to mitigating uh, any identified items in that kind of risk analysis. And so as we look through those and, and, and talk to different types of companies that are going through that process, they at times identify in their contingency plans, you know, needs to modify contracts. You know, 
those modifications of contracts um, can result in accounting and disclosure evaluations. This whole process of going through and evaluating the impact assessment, if you go back to my CorpFin questions and their disclosure topic number nine, the you need to know a lot of the impact items to be able to um, provide an accurate picture for where you're at. And so I think this all is happening at the same time simultaneously. And I think at times you've got um, each of those accounting and financial reporting kind of informing each other. Maybe Howard, you could go into a little bit about what you're seeing. Yeah. A couple of things that we're seeing as we start to go from IRS administrative relief being granted, the CARES Act being signed, and then how do we implement it? One of the things that is going to be a practical question is how quickly can people file and get their money? We're not sure how quickly that's going to be. The IRS has to give us some rules on some of these things on how to go do uh, your carryback claims. And then you've got the practical aspect of the IRS is dealing with the same shutdown issues that the rest of America is. Somebody has to be there to process them, especially if they're filed on paper and not electronically. Somebody has to program the computers to start spitting checks out. While a lot of this stuff sounds like you can get your cash immediately, some of these provisions are going to have a bit of lead time to them until the service can be ready to accept them. The other thing we're really trying to focus on is all of the overlapping provisions and making sure that we can get one filing done for our clients that covers everything at once rather than a refund claim for one thing that causes a different refund claim we need to make later on or offsetting costs and benefits. The other thing that we want to get focused, people focused on a little bit going forward is um, a number of businesses are going to need to raise cash in the ongoing, in the current environment. Everybody is not going to be able to make it without additional cash infusions. Need to be cognizant of Section 382 of the Internal Revenue Code. What this code section generally says is if you have net operating losses or credit carry forwards or certain other carry forwards and you have more than a 50% change in ownership over a three-year period generally, then there's a limitation that kicks in on how much of your NOLs you can use, which depending on the situation and depending on when a certain set of regulations goes final, could be draconian. So what does that mean? It means if you have to go out and raise equity, make sure you know what the 382 impact is going to be. So you know how much of your NOLs, after you've carried everything back, you know how much of your NOLs you'll have access to. The other thing to um, consider is whether you should look at a mix of debt or even debt and equity or even all debt. Debt typically doesn't trigger a 382 ownership change where equity always is considered towards 382. So as you start looking forward, you've got that to consider. And then finally, um, for the large businesses and the exchange stabilization fund, um, similar to what the government did in TARP a number of years ago, they've put some protections in there that says if the government takes an equity interest in your business, whether it's preferred stock or warrants or whatever it may be, that they will give you some semblance of protection so that the government's actions don't create a 382 event for you. It's left rather open in the legislation, but for your bigger companies, that's going to be something to pay attention to. You know, uh, I was going to say, that, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of information here. And as we sort of end this conversation, maybe you could uh, each 
talk about a little where you um, find out or where you, your resources that you use to get more information? Maybe Matt, you could start off. Yeah, I mean, we we're obviously on the accounting and financial reporting side. We're very plugged in as it pertains to you know following and, and connecting with a lot of industry groups. AICPA probably being the the one of the key ones. Um, and then working directly with the regulators, standard setters and regulators as, as issues are coming up, um, you know, like uh, banking regulators, FASB, uh, SEC, depending on, on what's going on. Um, I also uh, obviously stay very close to a lot of the developments as it pertains to the um, any kind of interventions that are impacting me personally. Um, and then what I hear out of, uh, you know, so it's, whether it's the state, local, other shelter in place, um, orders, you know, and then I, I also pay a lot of attention to, you know, what recommendations are coming out from, um, you know, the health agencies. So definitely would encourage people to, you know, go through a combination of those items as they're kind of, uh, responding for their business. And then also, if you go to crow.com, you'll land right to a link for our COVID-19 Resource Center, where we're kind of accumulating as a firm all of our accounting gap, SEC, tax, and similar advice all in one place. And I think that would be a good resource for everybody. Great. And then also, how would we find you uh, on as well? People wanted to follow up. Uh, LinkedIn, or I believe my contact information is also on the tax publications available in the uh, crow.com COVID-19 resource center. How about you, Matt? I, I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm also on uh, on Twitter. So people can find me on either of those and I'm on several of the publications that are in Crow's COVID uh, resource center as well. So please just feel free to shoot me an email or give me a call. Great. So sort of wrapping this up, um, you know, sort of summarizing it. What should accounting and financial professionals take away from all this this conversation? What's the one thing they should be doing next uh, that will help them move going forward? Maybe Matt, you want to start off? Yeah, I think the the big encouragement that I've given people is you know, don't be afraid to reach out to your lenders. Uh, uh, don't be afraid to reach out to your regulators. Um, there's a lot of encouragement for open lines of communications. If you're struggling, you need an extension. Um, you know, I, I suggest you contact them, contact them directly, um, kind of talk with them about where you're at. Um, you know, and, and, and I think they're all uh, lines is, you know, are open looking for ways that they can help work with you. Yeah, and um, I think the only comment I'd add, which is maybe stating the obvious is cash is king. Look, look for every little nickel you can find in the various federal and state relief provisions. They could be tax provisions. They could be workforce training grants. There could be any type of things that are out there. And, and just stay on top of it and stay with your industry groups. Um, a lot of industry-specific stuff will get done by the industry groups, not by the accounting firms and the law firms. And just stay on top of things because it's going to be changing every day. Terrific. I want to thank both of you for taking the time today to discuss this. Thank you very much. 